Greetings and welcome to yet another episode of the Greek Speak podcast. I'm the Archon, creator of the show, with the Greek as my co-host. This is episode 9 of what is an almost completed series of 10 episodes. My apologies for the record-setting gap of time between this and the last episode. I had hoped to get my schedule on track and that things were going to slow down for me, but um, that did not happen. And so... Things have progressed as they have, but I do hope to still finish within the next few weeks with this. We only have one more left to go after this one, so I think we should be fine. The Greek Speak website and podcast continues to be run by me as a personal project with no commercial, religious, or political affiliations, and it will most likely stay that way until we're done. So, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy the rest of the show, and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. Greetings. Hey, it's been a while since we last spoke. How have you been keeping yourself busy? Uh, sort of a while, I guess. Uh, busy, I'm not sure if you really want to be busy in this world. But, uh, yeah. Well, I guess to each his own. Some people need to have things to do, otherwise their idle hands fall into uh, things that they shouldn't be doing. But, yeah, we're going to focus on a new topic for this week. The last episode was politics and military. And I felt that the next topic should be about something equally pertinent to the structures that exert the most influence on the world. So I picked the economy and the legal society. Uh, Those are things that you've broached on before when talking about the credit system and your view on attorneys. So I think it's fitting to dig a little deeper into that. And we'll start with the economy, which I've divided into two segments, namely money and then uh, banks and the credit system. So... um. The word economy is widely defined as the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services in society, but the end goal of a lot of that activity is often what people call money, which is, I think, a very curious and diversified artifact. It doesn't seem to have one meaning, although it's commonly touted as a means of exchange, but it's also described since ancient times as being connected to evil doing because of people's attraction to it. So... I think there's more to impact than just what academia or financial institutions choose to share with the public about that. So my first question is, Greek, what is money really? And additionally, what does it represent? Okay. Uh, I would suggest that uh, let's go back to the definition of economy. Nomi, nomos or nomi meaning law and eco uh, or ecos meaning house. So literally means it's taken from the Greek uh, roots, uh, two roots, uh, eco and nomos, meaning uh, law of the house. And uh, if anyone has ever heard what we call Greek speak in the past, you might have been aware of uh, interjection of a concept called the gods, or uh, for most people's uh, perceptions, it's probably where they would consider to get their uh, religion, ethics, morality, etc., higher order conscious things uh, are, are within the realm of the divinity. The, the sense of, of the law of the house or economy ultimately stems from there, uh, which, of course, we're going to be talking about the legal system, which will also tie into that. But remember, before we even get to the legal system, that the legal pertains to law. It is not law in itself. So back to the what is money? Well, you know, it, it is such a subjective feeling because, you know, thoughts should be objective and feelings are always subjective, let's say. Um, I would suggest that people's subjectivity will always override uh, any clear meaning to the term of what is money. But uh, if one retracts themselves from the subjectivity and tries to, uh, you know, soar above the the, the landscape and... Uh, literally meaning a society living on the earth, terra firma, uses the goods and time and services and labor and uh, productions and all these things that they do on the earth as as part of their economy. So as you're on the earth, you uh, tend to be fairly stationary within what you call where you live. But once you start traveling outside of that, you need to portable sense of your society that lives on the earth to be uh, brought along with you and to be used as trade or exchange. But in essence, I've I've 
from Greek speak point of view, money is portable land. Uh, that's why if you look at uh, the lawful money concept or the lawful money concept, uh, uh, establishment is based on precious metals, which are extracted from the earth. At least, you know, most people would would suggest still that they are extracted from the earth. I would suggest that um, uh, the concept of portable land will also carry over to the discussion on the legal system uh, and what land and uh, ownership and things like that are. Um, before we go into what money is, I just want to bring up a few things. Uh, uh, this this is basically like a nomenclature that could be used to, to objectify what you hear about money and the economy uh, in your travels on this in this world. Uh, gold and silver, well, let's, you know, are, are precious metals, and there are other things that are considered precious, like minerals as well, and things of rarity, treasure, uh, art, and things like that. But uh, the precious metal and the rare items and the and the precious minerals, uh, uh, and then we we go down to the different uh, aspects of what we mentioned as being economy and used for trade. But the gold um, was used by nobility and royalty. It was a storehouse uh, of wealth, uh, and 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 it was basically used uh, as a reserve. That's why when you read about, uh, let's say, 19th century land purchases uh, between the United States and uh, Mexico and France and such, uh, that was the established, quote unquote, uh, ruling uh, body or the government. They uh, uh, had put in the contract that the exchanges would be made uh, with silver, not gold. So you can look at that, how many millions or thousands of pieces of silver were used to make certain purchases of land between nations. Now, the gold is in the reserve of the nobility, um, but they do use silver in, in the market or to make exchanges. The silver also was used by the common man to make exchanges and consequently uh, went both ways. Silver was used as a reserve and also gold by the common man. But typically the money was based on silver, whether it was a banknote or coinage or the value of things in, in monetary terms was in silver. Uh, and that would be for the working class, the middle class, you know, if you want to go caste system of classes, um, pretty much uh, was the silver base. The, um, the poor, the disenfranchised, meaning those that were not considered uh, to have mobility in society, used barter. They use barter of goods usually. Uh, they had, the, if I had a pound of potatoes and you had two pounds of corn, uh, that was a fair trade. Um, but if if the uh, corn wasn't doing well and the potatoes were, it might be two pounds of corn to one pound of potatoes. So the poor usually do barter. Um, and then we have credit. Credit is reserved for uh, the slave usually. Usually, uh, when you have a slave class, again, in the caste system, they operate on a credit system. What I mean by that is, uh, let's just, uh, that, that's a very broad topic, but I just nailed it in a very narrow description and explanation by giving an example. When you were um, a slave on, and you were under a, uh, a household, the master of the household might have been traveling or he, he didn't do certain menial things or any of the menial things if he could afford slaves. And believe it or not, one of the menial chores or labors to do uh, for the household or the estate was to go to the marketplace and what we call shopping today, you know, to buy either, uh, you know, uh, any item that the, that the estate would need from food, clothing to supplies, various sundries. Well, guess, guess what happened? Uh, the slave was called and given a list to go and purchase um, things at the market. And he did so with credit, using credit. Um, they would have a signet, either a, a bronze plaque or um, some form of signet, meaning something that represented the house, and it would be rubbed on a piece of leather or parchment to make an impression, kind of like the old credit card devices were. So the, this credit aspect uh, always went through the uh, private ownership concept uh, and the concept of um, exchanging debt. So 
I hope we went we went down from the gold as reserve, silver as the common currency. The poor use um, barter, and the slaves are in credit. So maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. So I think that there are a lot of things there to that will give us um, topics for further conversation, and that's cool. But I've heard you use that definition before. Money is portable land. And I certainly see its application, especially when you expand on it like that. But if money is really just land, then why isn't fruit and weeds considered effective money? Why does it have to be precious metals? I, I don't know that we've gotten to the heart of what it's supposed to represent as an item that also has social and psychological effects. What you're saying is one aspect of it, but I sometimes feel like we need a broader understanding as well. Well, the more valuable the substance, the less of it you need for uh, for an exchange with a comparably less valuable substance. So if, if it, money is portable land, uh, gold would probably be, in a common sense, uh, the most uh, valuable thing you can carry. Yes, there might be other precious metals based on commodities and things, but uh, 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 let's say a, a kilogram of gold will buy you 100,000 kilos of wheat. The more valuable it is, I mean, it, get, it can get to the point where you have, let's say, a new substance that's even more valuable than gold and, uh, you know, a, a grain of rice, you know, size piece of that metal can buy you um, 100,000 kilos of gold. But we already it's know a, that there's proper... stuff more valuable than gold. Like diamonds are considered more valuable than gold, so is platinum. Well, that's the subjective aspect of it. Like diamonds were, were – you, you won't see any advertisements or propaganda for diamond wedding rings until De Beers came into uh, – and diamonds are not rare, by the way. You're taught to believe that they're, that they're rare. They're very common. That's, that's one of the, uh, the, the, the uh, social conditioning things that you'll find uh, as you go along any research path. Okay. I hear you. Um, so – I will make an attempt to push into the areas that I'm talking about, and if you you know see anything valid there, then maybe you can expand on that as well. I personally don't have a completely comprehensive definition for money yet, but from what I've been able to discern, I would add to what you're saying that money is also a representation of something, and it seems to be a representation of power, where power is not some indeterminate or bland word the way that the entertainment industry makes it out to be with you know cartoons or superhero movies but power meaning ability um, more specifically the ability to manifest your intentions whether that's something industrial social destructive edifying or logistical um, which is why someone like Bill Gates seems to be able to do anything he wants but homeless people on the street are some of the most limited people in society so because the world agrees that money will be used to mediate almost everything it becomes the most identifiable source of power that most people know of. Well, it's not. It's only power until you run into someone that says it's not for sale. Then it then it then it puts a stop on that power. So what you do is you retract and you find people that uh, you can influence with the money to go and do more of a, uh, you know, plans within plans, treachery within treachery against that uh, which was not for sale. So you can acquire it, take it by force. You ever heard of a concept called a hitman or an assassin? Indeed. Right. So, yeah, I mean, force, obviously, when when you have enough of it, outranks most things as far as being able to affect your will. But this sort of social contract that exists in place today where things are not outright chaotic in most parts of the world and people have an order that they have acquiesced to, money is the means of greasing the wheels between most interactions. And that exists as the dominant form of hard power second only to violence, which most people don't want to resort to. Well, let's go back to the aspect when you have money and you equate that with power until you find into something uh, or that you would like to have or acquire and it's not for sale by the, the person or the organization bearing it, then you result to force. Okay, and uh, well, you don't result to force. You, you, you find those that will uh, perform what you want them to perform for that money that you have. Uh, and then you get your power that way. Uh, but it also has to do with the ideology. Like uh, if you couldn't find people that were in, 
let's say, savage or simple or materialistic to accept money to do anything, what you do is you start diminishing uh, the culture and you start breeding a new culture that will do that. And that's what, what you see in place today throughout the world. But I mean, the people that are doing that, you know, they, they don't lack for anything as far as being able to use force. I mean, that's a very sort of long term, I think, plan for somebody that wants to engineer the world in a certain way. But anyway, we may still find a satisfactory definition, I think, moving forward. I'm certainly seeing what you're saying, but I still feel like there's a, a slightly missing component that we might stumble onto as we continue to talk about it. Well, the missing component is the, is the ideology of the society, meaning uh, uh, what kind of what form of law they they uh, they have allegiance to and uh, live to uphold. And so, the first thing you have to do to take control of the economy is take control of the law, right? And um, and then you subject the society to a, a changing uh, law system, not legal system, but a, a, you know, which is an ideology and uh, uh, what something you live by. And uh, then you either eliminate those that don't want to go with it by many, many ways, uh, disease, war, whatever, starvation, uh, financial crashes, right? You withdraw the money and then you breed a new culture just like you would uh, domesticate a chicken, for example, or domesticate a farm animal. And at this time, what you, what you experience is uh, an education system, a history, a law form, a culture that is fairly new. It was uh, revised and redone by what you call the 1950s on the Pope's work schedule. It started in the end of the 19th century. Uh, anyone could go do some research on... Uh, Economic textbooks, not really textbooks, but economic commentary in the 19th century. There was uh, many uh, economic schools of thought and uh, pertaining to, you know, uh, various cultures. You know, this is before the rise of communism and capitalism and such. Uh, you already been over 200 years into the uh, Industrial Revolution, which started in the 15 or 1600s. Uh, so you, you're looking at uh, a social engineering that that is now manifest that began in earnest by the mid to late 19th century. It didn't take very long to redo the entire world. So when you look at uh, culture changes, tradition and law form changes, uh, it, the concept of finance is understood. And, and also it's very difficult for people to perceive it objectively because they've been raised in it. And, uh, you know, their parents and grandparents also uh, reinforce this new breeding program or, or social engineering. So there, there's no way they'll be able to see out of it if they're looking for approval from those around them. All right. I understand that. Sort of the thing that I mentioned before about this other aspect of money that's been talked about since ancient times is that it's most notably appropriated from the Bible. Love of money is the root of all evil. Is there a rational uh, reason that we can give for that? Is it because perhaps people seek power, perhaps above all else, and because they see money as representing that, they go for it? Most people seek power with money. I've, I've encountered certain individuals that live an extremely modest life and almost to the point where, where they'd be living out of a trailer or, or a mobile home and they're billionaires. And you wouldn't know it. And they and they shop. They never buy new clothes. They buy used clothes. Uh, they they sort of look uh, not well kept. Uh, so those are the exceptions. So it's not a rule that money is power. The and again, uh, you you really don't need um, r religious fanaticism, right? Can breed power or followers. That would go back to the Gustave Le Bon authorship of the crowd, let's say, to understand power. But in essence, for this conversation, you're at the tail end of a 19th century social engineering platform, which pretty much uh, gave up about 10 or 20 years ago, and now on a new social engineering platform, which will never really uh, come into fruition, which is designed to go out to what's called 2050. Right. So I just threw in a whole bunch of stuff there. But but without getting sounding too philosophical and, and being more empirical, 
perhaps maybe discussing how the money system works today that most people are not aware of. Well, we're certainly going to get to that, uh, of course. We're not going to skip it. I just thought it was curious that, I mean, you've given these other examples of power mediums, but I don't see the ancient record saying that those things are the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. So clearly there's okay. something pertinent there. Well, the love of the, the it's not money, but the love of money. So you can be uh, poor, let's say, and have a love for money, or you could be wealthy and have a love for money. It's indiscriminate. It's just the love for money. It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't denote any kind of quantity or possession of. Ultimately, when you when you consider even lawful money, it's still a fiction. I'll give you an example. If everyone was able to produce gold, uh, tangible, sellable, elemental gold in their kitchen, how much would it be worth? Not right? very much. Right. So now the the uh, the empirical, what's seeming empiricalness of gold becomes ephemeral. So it is a fiction. In other words, it's not absolute. But what is absolute is uh, for a certain age, what is given as a moral uh, and ethical and law, uh, standing in law, uh, gold is the storehouse of wealth. And until it is made more public or commonly known on how to produce it in mass, uh, it stands. You know, is it possible to live in a society where there is no money? I think uh, Bradbury showed us that in Star Trek, right? If everyone just did what they found they should do to upkeep you know, the, themselves in society and all that, and there was equal sharing, uh, whether it was meritoria, you know, based on merit or not, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't need money. And just to interject, you, you know, you don't, there is no money in society today at all. So, uh, you know, like you said earlier, there's no chaos. So the, the, the person who has a love for money in this society is a, a real sick individual, if you really consider that, because there is no money today in circulation or used. Well, yes, in the strictest sense of uh, following the definition, but that which money is used to achieve, I think is perhaps more worthy of consideration than just the medium itself, which is ultimately just a rock, a precious metal. You're using that to achieve some kind of social gain or material gain, which is a far more interesting dynamic to analyze than the rock. Okay. There is lawfulness, and then there is what is being done. And what is being done in, in the world society today is not lawful. So when we say something like money, uh, that is rooted in lawfulness. When you uh, compare it to the activities of the current society on the planet, it is unlawful. So it's very difficult to carry over, uh, let's say, a thought or an explanation uh, to an unlawful group. Meaning, it's okay. Uh, there, it's spontaneous. It's uh, unpredictable in a sense, unless unless you know the future, and it's uh, unstable and dangerous, right? So then, if you start looking at all the other things that, if you're going to plan a society as it is today, you're going to have to put things in place called policing, right? Regulation and other things like that uh, to control the volatility, potential volatility of a society that has no money but still engages in exchange and to make it even worse that they think there is money. The next step is um, you have to remove any kind of reference to anything lawful. So you introduce a legal system, you introduce attorneys, you eliminate uh, any knowledge of history or science, right? Or, or and you uh, eliminate education. Uh, you eliminate um, uh, any kind of a spirituality that is uh, edifying. You know, you give them garden variety uh, demonology, Juda Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, all these things. Uh, so they just play around. Uh, Satanism, same same stuff. You form a society that from a cosmic point of view is actually worthless it, because it, it spends most of its time and intention engaging in worthlessness with the uh, small group of people that, that are behind the scenes. And, and when I say people, I don't necessarily mean human either, um, but people nonetheless that are in control of this, uh, this planet.
so that that is basically it in a nutshell. And you can go off in any direction you want on all those things, you know, meaning the military aspect, the industrial aspect, the education aspect, the science aspect, the religious aspect, and all that. And the underpinning element to all that is finances, because, you know, most people want to do things and they need the financing to do it. So when you start discussing the financial element, and once you get outside of that, it's the lawfulness, in other words, it's not operating lawfully, it's a very, very open conversation because anything goes. In other words, any type of fraud or any type of scam that's acceptable becomes the norm. Mm. All right. Well, like you suggested before, let's um, perhaps move on to the banks and the credit system, having looked at money. You said before that what we have today are not really banks, but some kind of financial institution. So perhaps we can start with historically, what is a bank? Many ways to, to look at it, but for you had uh, it was it was a proxy storage of wealth, meaning if you didn't want to store it within your estate or your personal or land that you had control over, you brought it to the bankers. It, it, all the way down, to, you know, the bank being uh, you know a physical place with physical money, meaning precious metals or notes uh, representing that. Uh, all the way down to a bank, meaning a table for a money changer, uh, people that traveled and they used a, a different rate system. So in other words, if you had a, a coin that weighed a certain amount, you wanted uh, for one country, you wanted to exchange it for the type of coins weighing whatever other amount uh, for another country. So you can do the common exchange, you know, in purchases. So that's basically uh, what what the banks were, basically to change money from one jurisdiction to another or one uh, culture from another, all the way uh, also from the storage of, uh, you know, holding someone's wealth, uh, which which would be either for personal reasons, uh, for their family or estate, or for trade. And then you get into what's called the, the law of nations, which is in the U.S. Constitution, and uh, the law of merchant which we'll probably cover a little bit about both ways with the economic and the legal uh, discussion. Okay, so I believe that the banks also had a religious component to them uh, going quite far back. You have clay tablets from 2000 BC that show that the earliest recorded accounts of banks were actually the temples. So, for example, the sun god of Babylon would lend, well, not the sun god, but the priests would lend money to the farmers in exchange for a portion of their yield and would be very demanding in collecting the interest and so... Um, that activity seems to have always been managed by a power base and not just some random part of the public. Yeah, you could say that. Well, again, uh, what was considered lawful money came from your gods, so of course. And what can you sh share about how banking developed during the first and second millenniums? It seems that it was always something that was connected to certain ethnic groups or certain races or even certain countries like Italy or Austria after a certain point. How did that industry find itself being centralized around very specific groups and regions? It uh, There was a division that happened around that time between the Eastern and the Western world, as you can always see references to, to such even today, the East and the West. So we, we can discuss it uh, either way, uh, but there that that bipolar existence in the world that still exists East or West uh, is is simply uh, the way to describe it. The East always had more of a xenophobic, uh, uh, isolationist, and the West had a more expansive uh, view on 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 the world. Uh, you could look at the uh, colonization of the continent of Africa by the Dutch, for example, uh, as, as one essence of of uh, expansion where you don't see colonization of. Uh, the Sino culture or the Chinese culture or the Asian culture beyond that area. Um, so I would just say that it's not in a phenomenon or anything. It just is um, the way the West expanded. And it's also it also has borrowed more from the East, meaning the Persian, Farsi or what you modern what we call modern day Iran, uh, many uh, or Arabic uh, even uh, what. Persians and Farsi are not Arabic, but also from the Arabic uh, concept uh, and the Judeo concept of finance and, of course, brought to Europe 
uh, and mixed in with their ideology there. So it has a reputation for being a central point um, because of the presumed uh, Christian era that you're living in right now. It's, from a secular point of view, it's, this is the Christian era, and it harkens back, of course, to the Vatican and all that. So I don't see it much as a phenomenon or a change of anything other than more of a uh, worldwide standardization. It does extend into the East, though, given that it is a worldwide thing. So it's right. not like you have these two separate systems of banking or finance in the East and the West, as far as I can tell. The ideologies are different, um, but it, the Babylonian system extended to the East as well, which is you're not supposed to know about. In other words, uh, you, you only know about recent phenomena, uh, uh, recent uh, historical occurrences. Like I mentioned earlier, you're not allowed to know the real history of man, you know, of civilization, how things uh, change. You only know the, the for most people the past two weeks, but generally academically, you don't go back more than a few years, and then the rest of it's all a lie, going back, you know, how, however far that's commonly accepted history. But the, the world standardization happened uh, with the Egyptians. That was that's well known with artifacts found in even in Australia, where there was an Egyptian system. Uh, the, there's a, a well-known uh, established facts that artifacts of Babylonian weights and measures and money are found in places in South America and Colombia during the Babylonian period. Uh, you know, early Iron Age, let's, let's say, for example. Uh, this standardization, uh, basically, at what focal point? And now it, it tends to be the IMF out of Washington, D.C. and the Bank of London in, in, in England or the city of London. So these things change uh, somewhat. Hmm. And so banks and economies, they underwent an enduring change in the 20th century with the spread of central banks and fiat currency and centralized authorities for governing global finance. And a lot of people in the alt media will point to the Federal Reserve or Bank for International Settlements or IMF or blah, 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 as the culprits of some nefarious global agenda that has orchestrated that. And But usually they can't name real names other than the usual suspects of certain families that are the guilty parties. What more accurately can be said about how this thing evolved in the 20th century? Well, it was tried out in earnest in the 19th century. From the beginning of the 19th century, uh, for example, Canada was experimented on with a Federal Reserve type system in the 18, late 1800s before they put it in place in America. Now, when you say fiat currency, it's fiat in operation because it's not really a bank note, but it's not fiat. Um, all of the bank notes today, because they're called fiat, in other words, you can't get anything for them, are not fiat. They're actually backed by, um, they actually represent a lien on the people, the land, the birds, the trees, uh, all the legal artifacts, meaning whatever can be uh, described on paper, uh, all of the banknotes represent a lien uh, by the central bank on the government and the people of that country. So they're not really fiat. They're actually backed up. Like, for example, if the United States or Spain or, you know, even though they're part of the EU or any other country wanted to bring in lawful money, they couldn't because they have nothing to back it with, you see. Uh, so it's fiat in operation, but in essence, it's backed up by um, what you hear bankers saying all the time. It's not backed up by anything but the faith of the people. What's faith? It goes into the religious uh, topic, uh, just like you know, we'll show later how the legal system is a religion also. And I mean that uh, literally, not uh, figuratively from a fanatic sense. All right, I hear you. Uh, but pertaining to still though the developments that took place that put in place the current credit system, from what I understand is that you had a series of events that took place in the 30s around okay. that time. Can we talk about yeah, that? Yeah, let's let's Yeah, let's let's just show a very simple way in how it's done. Based on how most countries are set up, it doesn't matter what the type of system that's in place, monarchy, communism, capitalism, whatever, uh, the, they were either convinced or what was put in place was to go into a contract with a private bank uh, or banking cartel known as central banks. So what they did was they go into a contract, they usually amend their constitution or whatever form of government documents that they have to allow this to happen, they, and by legislation, let's say, or by decree. Uh, 
And once this happens, the, uh, instead of the government itself being in control of the money, hands over all the tasks and responsibilities to this private banking cartel, which is always disguised as, you know, uh, using the country, the country's name and, and, and uh, but always being a central bank. The central bank is the giveaway. Uh, so what happens is the uh, the central banking system starts to go about all the business of producing and distributing money uh, like a government would, but for a fee. But every time it does uh, a, a form of production or finance or financial activity, um, it requires something tangible from that particular government. And when the government runs out of everything tangible, then that central bank by contract puts that government into bankruptcy because the fees are still owed. Okay. An example here in the United States would be the Federal Reserve Act comes into play and they produce all the financial requirements for the government at a rate of 6%. And all the financial activities require, you know, dep gold deposits and uh, deposits of deeds and, you know, t uh, tangible items, um, meaning land uh, titles and things like that. So what happens is if, uh, you know, as time in as seemingly in perpetuity, as time keeps going on and on and on, um, the government runs out of things to give the private bank, the Federal Reserve, to uh, monetize or produce in, the, you know, financial products in the in the economy, whether it's banknotes or coin or whatever. Um, and but the government still requires these financial activities to carry on. But the Federal Reserve won't work for free. They work at a rate of 6%. So what happens is uh, the government says it's federal to the Federal Reserve, I need money for this year's economy. And the Federal Reserve says, well, you have nothing else to give me. Well, that's because we've, you know, the government says because we've given you everything. Well, that's too bad. It's not my problem. And by the way, if you have nothing else to give us, you still owe us 6%. Plus, you need to still keep operating the next month, year, 10 years or whatever. So what do we do? So what they do is they uh, the government uh, goes into bankruptcy. It's already been incorporated because a, a non-incorporated government cannot go into contract with uh, a, a private entity, by the way. I hope I haven't lost anyone into this point. Uh, by the way, there's not an economics uh, professor or, or academic idiot that knows any of this, but you could look it up yourself even if you're eight years old. So... So what happens is they go through this elaborate but yet quiet bankruptcy, uh, which uh, instead of shutting down the government in bankruptcy, they put it in what's called receivership. And if anyone knows what receivership and bankruptcy is, uh, you can see uh, things try to remain as the same as possible. So when an entity, a corporation or organization goes into bankruptcy and receivership, you don't you try to change as little as possible. All that means is that the creditor, meaning the central bank, now owns the government, but keeps it operating because it's a fixture in society that society shouldn't do without. And that's pretty much it. And that's uh, and that's how it works uh, 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 in the American system, in the European system, in the Asian system as well. And basically, uh, the the main commodity is the human. It's called human resources. Uh, or however you want to look at it. Uh, basically, you're living uh, on a, as a slave, uh, but, but not uh, understandable in the way that you've been taught what a slave is, but legally you are a slave, a quote-unquote citizen. As a matter of fact, you could look at the 14th Amendment. They kind of spell it out uh, in the U.S. Constitution. It says there will be no more slavery, just U.S. citizens. I mean, it's used in the same sentence. So... That's pretty much how all the systems work. It's kind of like uh, the the stuff you see in the entertainment system with Hollywood. When you start dealing with the mafia, a businessman needs some money to run his business or expand, and he deals with the mafia. And by the end of the film, he loses the business to the mafia or organized crime. It's the same uh, story uh, with the financial system. All right, so we're looking at a global bankruptcy of multiple nations that took place somewhere around the 30s 40s ish and yet there's hardly any paperwork on this i mean there's a guy called rod class who's the only one that i know of that does comprehensive talks about that but he's also tangled himself up in the u.s legal system so he can fight his own court case and prove a point to his patriot social circle so he doesn't reach that far 
But other than that, there's not really much else to access directly about this. <clears throat> Congressional record. You could you could do. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that have gathered. Uh, congressional records regarding uh, commentary with Congress, which Congress, by the way, in America was shut down in the 1860s. So, I mean, they just show up as actors now. Uh, civil war was not the civil war. You typically have a revolution or a civil war or a severe depression. And, and it, all of this, by the way, is it has a very strong spiritual component to it. If you understand uh, what's called human inspiration, Literally, in other words, you, there is a non-tangible component behind all of this, and you and you see it constantly uh, in in the uh, language, uh, you know, the banking, uh, the financial language, and also the legal language, and also in the symbolism. Um, most people will always point to the all-seeing eye on the dollar bill or something of that nature. Okay, so let's look at how today's economy actually functions. P professors and bankers will talk about things like GDP and loans and stocks and interest rates and taxes, but what are the principal determinants of how money slash credits move around, who gets first dibs on accessing them, etc., etc.? Yeah, see, okay, everything is in receivership, meaning you have a small cartel that runs and owns everything by presumption. That's why, for example, when people uh, get an IRS lien, it says notice of lien. Well, they don't need to provide a, a, a lien because there's a presumption that everything is under a lien and you just got them upset. So now they're saying that, well, you know, we don't presume that you have a lien on you. But you see, so it's all by presumption. Uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the backbone to, to all of that is understanding the different, like you said, who gets first dibs on it. The, the different levels, the different tiers, like you have the, the primary market, which is how the credit is created. For example, every time you sign a piece of paper, that piece of paper, or, or, or now it's digital, gets monetized. That's primary. Then you have the secondary market, which is the, uh, the servicers or the debt collectors or the, the banks that you the, – the, the part of the bank that does deposits and things like that and checks – Actually, check is part of the primary, but anything that you sign is primary. The debt collectors and all the, the legal, the attorneys, all that stuff is secondary market. Now, and then there's a tertiary market, which is kind of like the entertainment business, you know, um, where they promote uh, all of these things. Uh, one thing to, co to comprehend is when you're going to put a new system in a society, doesn't matter what it is, religious, technical, financial, or whatever, you have to make sure that a good portion or enough of a portion, which could be only two or three percent in some cases, of the society relies on you, your system, as for its livelihood. In other words, a government job. For example, um, if you, the more government employees you have, there are, the weaker the the nation or society is. Because, for example, if, if the government starts to become, quote-unquote, evil, uh, very few people are going to quit their job. They're going to continue working, and they're going to yell out and scream, what do you want me to do? This is my living, right? You see? So the secondary market, the debt collectors and the attorneys and all that that get involved with finances, it, you know, are there to uphold plausibility because people are still going on the ancient notion that if you borrow money, you have to pay it back. And when you start explaining that there is, they actually just monetize your signature and you're the one providing the credit, you're the creditor, not the debtor, but they switch you in a contract that now you're the debtor, they can't understand that. It's like it's called the 800-pound grill in the room that no one sees. That That's a whole concept of I, I like to put the, forward the term cosmic censorship. It doesn't matter what's in the room. If if they're blocked from seeing it, it doesn't matter what it is, it, you know, the, how big or how small. So the secondary market, the debt collectors and all that, like, for example, if someone gets a $10,000 loan, let's just use the regular slave parlance, um, they're finished. They actually provided uh, at least uh, $80,000 for the bank just with signing because it's a 10 to 1, right? It's, so they provided $90,000 and the bank has to keep 10% uh, uh, in reserve. So. So, you know, it's basically the creation of modern money mechanics of Federal Reserve, 
you know, uh, Chicago money, uh, Federal Reserve Bank out of Chicago, modern money mechanics. I once had an economics professor say, oh, that's a fake document, even though, it, you know, the Federal Reserve puts it out. So basically, uh, the secondary markets there to maintain plausibility, that's where you're uh, – uh, the the back the the main backbone meaning the millions and millions of people that rely on this system and will not question it because that's how they get their quote unquote paycheck you see so the most important aspect of it is not really that there is a small cartel or of you know people that have usurped the money system of the whole world the the main component is the 2%, 3%, 4%, 5% of the population that works in the legal field and in the financial field. That's all the secondary market. They actually are a proxy army for this uh, private banking system. You know, uh, for example, uh, everyone knows someone, right, uh, that works in the financial system or the legal system or the government, right? So you don't want to see them lose their job, do you? What kind of a person would want that, right? So that's – and the more people that work for the government uh, or the financial system or the legal system, the weaker the society gets, you know, with this type of system. And that's the secondary market. You mentioned a bit about, you know, cosmic censorship and the fact that people cannot understand certain concepts. And I find that people don't seem to grasp really the difference between credit and debt and even in the elite classes of people that claim to be experts in this area, whether it's people that run shows on money or the economy or it's politicians, they don't really seem to acknowledge that it's a credit-based economy and they talk a lot about debt. Can you differentiate between credit and debt and parse that a little bit? Sure, that goes into the legal system. Um, it's all wordplay. Uh Short of being a boy and writing, signing a contract that you're a girl, Right. Anything else is possible. Even that's possible now. So what happens is uh, you sign a piece of paper and it's monetized. Right. In other words, um, the bank has nothing. It's just a, a storefront or it could be digital. All it has in its inventory are transaction numbers, preset transaction numbers. A certain number of pr transaction numbers are given to each bank and they're just sitting there. And the moment someone that can sign their name, uh, or give an autograph or a mark, a transaction number is brought up and the details are filled in. This person came in for a loan for $10,000. Did they sign it? Yes. Okay. Next to the transaction number, $10,000 appears and everybody's okay. But we can't do this uh, for everyone all the time because people will, will say, well, I don't have a job. I don't want a job. I'll just go sign my name and get $10,000 a week, right? And then nothing will ever get done in society. So you have to maintain plausibility. So then within the contract that they sign or for getting the $10,000, it says that for the loan that I have received, you actually lie. They lie and you swear to it, right? If you look at any mortgage or anything, it says for the loan that I received, I will pay back, right? That now, So this document creates the conditions and, and anything before that document will never be looked at by the jurisprudence uh, or the jurisdictions if it ever comes up for arbitration. It can't because the, the whole system is based on, on that. You know, the last thing you want uh, is these patriotic idiots to realize that their government sold them down the river and doesn't exist anymore, the, meaning the government doesn't exist in the way that they think it does, right? So you can't uh, for for uh, normalcy. You you have to start uh, you know turning uh, princes into frogs on paper. Yes, I follow you, but let's not forget to differentiate between credit and debt, though. Well, that's well. On you, it, the credit is created when you sign and it's monetized, but then it becomes debt when you sign a contract saying, for a loan you received, you are now a debtor. But you never received a loan. You're the one that actually financed it. It would be like going to a coffee shop and buying a coffee. And the moment you sit down, you, before you take a sip from it, they take it from you and they give it to the next patron who pays for it, the same coffee. And then if you say, well, I want coffee, well, you have to buy another one. How dare you want to drink the coffee you just bought? <laughs> okay, I follow you. But, but it's, this thing is interesting, though, where you say that the bank has nothing – 
and it's just a holder of these transaction numbers. But then by that sort of understanding, let's say you and I decide to create a bank, we'd get rich today. It's got, we, we don't need any uh, to hold anything. Well, the bank is a national association. Like you could name any bank, Citibank, JP Morgan, um, Wells Fargo, whatever, Deutsche Bank, go on and on and on, right? Rabobank. What, what those are national associations. And national associations like the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Sierra Club, environmental groups, right? And they're, they're, they're NGOs, non-government organizations, but they have cage codes, which is a corporate and government entity code. Okay, so the reason why the banks are wealthy is not because they're running as a bank. It's because they set up a corporation. Uh, you, you can see this if you do business with banks. Let's say you do business with Bank of America. There's Bank of the of America NA, which is National Association. Then there's Bank of America Trust. Then there's Bank of America Inc. Incorporated. There's Bank of America this. Right, so they use the same name to create different entities, which they pile and dump the funds if they can into it, or have people buy shares and things like that. It's the same thing you see in religion. Is it a black Jesus? Is it a white bleeding heart Jesus? Is it a Jesus that you go to hell if you don't believe in? Is it a Jesus that is this? Or, you know, which one? Which Jesus are you talking about? Which Buddha are you talking about? This is all. Uh, based on fanaticism and religious uh, underpinnings, all of it. I remember at one point when I was in Chicago, and I think they have it in other cities as well, you walk past a certain building and they have this big national debt number that's in the several billions. So this is just a joke? No, the debt is actually the government's debt, but the government convinces you to pay their debt. It's kind of like you get a handful of bills at the end of the month and you go convince a stranger to pay them for you. I mean... And they keep doing it. And uh, you get used to that. And then when they don't want to do it anymore, you want to kill them. That's what's going on today. Also, when the new banking system is put in place, this banking system, uh, everyone that lives in the land that you have sold, given over to the banks is your enemy. Right? Like in America, they have the Trading with the Enemies Act. Various other countries, they call it hostilities, belligerence, this and that. They're talking about you. Right, because if the people of any given government find out what the government did, not as do, and is doing, they would clean it clean it out right away. But they don't. But the government preempts that by declaring them the enemy, and the people don't know that they are the enemy. So when you hear, whether it's from military, industrial, or television, or media, or government, whenever they talk about the enemy, they're talking about you. It's a it's a that's why I mean you're you're witnessing the decline of the society, and the plans to create a new breeding program, you know, where there is no male or female and you have cybernetic, you know, people that are part machine part and the rest are just drugged. And then the other, another group of people which are used for food, you know, cannibalism and, the, you know, this plan to create a new society by the 2050s, just like in the 1890s, they wanted a new society by the 1950s, right? You see, but you're in decline because it won't come into fruition. Hmm. Um, last thing on the subject of banks and credit systems, it does seem to be the case that a lot of activity centers around certain places like Switzerland and Luxembourg. Are you? Do you know why that is? Well, because um, it, these things are, are like Switzerland and Luxembourg and places like that, even places in Holland, The Hague, that is strategic. It's not a, an accident. In other words, it's strategically uh, set up that way. And they're not, you know, a, a, a sense of neutrality. That's like the hub of evil, for example, right? Like everyone looks at Switzerland as being, oh, yeah, they're neutral, they're peaceful, they're great. No, they're actually probably one of the most evil groups on the planet, right? Uh, in terms of what good, if you're going to go down the road of good and evil, right? Good being beneficial and evil, be, evil being non-beneficial, so, um, no, that is a strategic location. Uh, Babylon was a, a neutral place uh, in the ancient world. Really? Yeah. Is that how so? Well, it it, it ran the world through satellites. It, it, whenever you see a group going out and conquering, uh, their home base is always neutral. Yeah, even Rome was neutral. You know, even though Caesar sat there, it was considered uh, separate from anything else. You know, like the all all the roads lead to Rome, 
Well, why would you? Why would that? Why would that be so? If my memory serves me right, there was a few occasions where Rome was invaded by foreigners who identified it as the hub of the activity that they had to go and cut down. So they, the enemies didn't view it as neutral. Sure, but if you look at Switzerland, Switzerland in 2002 or so was cut down also, right, economically. They became a sovereign state, right? I think Dmitry Kalazov talks about that in one of his uh, YouTube videos. In other words, they became a corporation and fell into the rest of the group because there was no need for them uh, to be neutral. And also, the more people became educated, then they would start focusing on it. So they made a cover for it by destroying uh, Switzerland uh, in its legal state. They changed its legal standing into, you know, uh, a schmuck country like the rest of the world. Okay, so um, let's look at the the last topic for the episode, which is how the legal system works. So firstly, we have a group of gatekeepers that mediate between the legal authorities and the public who are called lawyers and attorneys. But you've remarked on how those two groups are not the same. So can you differentiate between them, lawyers and attorneys? Well, a lawyer was always known as someone learned in the law. An attorney was someone that was uh, used by a feudal lord to interact with his um, the, the fief, uh, you know, the fiefdom, the, sl- the serf or the slave. And there's no there's no going around that. But what happens is because everyone is an attorney now, meaning that deals with the legal system, people have forgotten that what an attorney really is or really does. And because it's normal, it's normal. In other words, there's nothing alarming about an attorney. Right. But but an attorney is there for representing legal fictions, corporations or serfs and slaves or incompetent people. And uh, that's that harkens back to what I started off early uh, in the sonic event. This is a slave system. So why would you have people that are learned in the law or why would you be learned in the law if you're a slave and you have a credit based system? If you proclaim and try to exercise uh, knowledge of being learned in law, you'll be punished for it because it's it goes against the norm. It's just like thinking. Imagine you. it, it was normal for all the people or 99.99999% of all the people in all the countries, all the nations, all the corporations, whatever, were all cannibalistic. And you started saying, well, cannibalism is wrong. You'll be promptly locked up and, and well, you'll be laughed at and then you'll have ad hominem attacks against your person and then you'll be, you know, sequestered from the group or and or, you know, eliminated with extreme prejudice. The same thing with the attorneys. If the entire planet is based on a credit system, uh, and people are legally enslaved, meaning they're chattel and they're issued a serial number and they're treated as property and charged with crimes and things like that. Uh, to say that attorneys are not good or, you know, or whatever, any criticism against them uh, is, is viewed as irrational. And it is actually. Think about it. It would be irrational to negatively criticize attorneys if it's already been well understood, rationalized, and established that everyone uh, is pretty much a slave. All humans are slaves, except for very small enclaves on the planet. Why would you criticize attorneys? Aren't you, what are you stupid or something? Don't you know that you're just a slave? Right? You're operating in a credit system. Why would you? Of course, it's natural to have attorneys, right? You see the point? Yes, of course. To shift a bit away from the attorneys, which I think are a bit like a, a lower level of the rung, let's look at the lawyers a bit. What are the first historical accounts of those people coming onto the scene? Where did they come from? And were they always considered to be malevolent from the start? No, the, the, the original lawyers, the original doctors, the original professors were the priesthood. The original banks and the original <clears throat> uh, universities and government buildings were the temples, right? So as these things grew and expanded and, and you had uh, annexes, right? If you had, for example, as we said, uh, the temple being the base for uh, the noble things in society, if that society expanded and became empiric- an empire, uh, you, there's only one temple, but you, you're going to make annexes of that temple another, you know, a, along your empire. So then you, in a diminished sense, have a lower priest. He's not a priest, but he knows everything a priest should know. Can you call him a priest if he's not a priest? No, you call him a representative of the priest, whether it's a matter of 
uh, knowledge, whether, you know, basic education, history, money, health, you know, medical, whatever. You had people representing that priesthood throughout the empire or throughout the land. But they weren't the priests, so they became the doctors, which means teacher, or the attorney, which is the representative, you know. Usually the the attorney worked from the bottom up, not from the top down. In other words, he, his authority came from the top down, but he worked from the bottom up. He brought the the unwashed masses to the hierarchy. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Right. That's why you have to get an attorney to represent yourself. When someone tells you to get an attorney representative, it means you're just telling you nothing but a serf or a slave, and you can't stand in front of the lords or the you know the uh, the master. Okay. They're, that's why they don't like. Uh, it, here's the interesting thing: like today, even today, in the courts, uh, they're all sham courts anyway. Um, but all of them, by the way, because uh, if you try to have a real court, it would be closed down by fire or extreme prejudice. The um, the aspect of um, representing yourself, they don't like that because if you if you're capable and learned in the law you wouldn't be wasting their time because you would know already that you shouldn't be in that court. You get it? They only want people that are represented by attorneys because if you're going to go in there as yourself, you're learning the law. Well, if you're so learned in the law and you're going in there as yourself, you should have avoided the entire matter from the beginning, which I've talked about before. You do that by going through the administration, not the judicial or the justice court, which is a sham or a religion or whatever you want to call it. Based on the justice religion, you know, the female goddess, I think I've talked about ad, nause ad nausea for years now. It, it, to be forced into a justice court is actually religious oppression. They don't uh, know that, and they, they would laugh at you if you brought that up. But actually, if you went, if they're laughing at you, you're, on two, you're dealing with uh, those that are really too low on the... Uh, on the rung, on the ladder, you need to go up higher, and they they know exactly what's going on. So, yeah, all of this stuff has a religious underpinning to it. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to dig into the uh, religious underpinnings, but that is always something that people can look into. It's things that I think we might have mentioned at some point in earlier streams, also. Um, you won't find you won't sorry uh, you won't find much on on the justice system. Uh, being uh, based on the goddess religion in in uh, what they call the search engines, you're gonna have to find uh, some stuff that's uh, uh, printed from 19th century or before, uh, and you're gonna have to open your eyes and look at all the symbolism. Just like uh, who is it, Confucius? Confucius say right, ancient Chinese secret. Uh, the symbols are the great communicators in a society, not words, but symbols. And he, he wasn't talking about the pictographic nature of the Chinese writing system. He was talking about the uh, what is hidden is uh, is revealed through symbolism. Yeah, I think that there's a general sentiment of that being um, the case now in the mainstream. I think people generally know that, but they don't seem to know what the symbols mean. And so they speculate and all kinds of rumors abound. So in this society where the imperative of the legal system is to maintain the order on behalf of these nameless patrons of the corporate state. Can it be said that crime actually pays, since what we have is really just criminals judging other criminals? Sure, but the thing is, the real criminals are the ones judging the people that are presumed to be criminals. In a factual, lawful sense, the the entire society is a is criminal society. So if everyone is criminal, are there any criminals? No. So now you, you've basically you've turned everything over to a new paradigm now. Well, because everyone, meaning it's kind of like with the police. There are no good police. The reason why there are no good police is because uh, those that are deemed good know about the bad police and don't do anything about it. So they're accomplices, you see. And by the way, the police are a function of the banks. We've talked about that. Their lawful societies don't have police, uh, only the ones that are bankrupt or where allow private banks to come in and, and, you know, basically mortgage up everything, right? I'm not against the police because I have no interest. I'm not against anything that they're doing uh, on this planet because it's all bad. So I can't say that I'm against uh, any specific aspect of anything in this society. I'm against all of it. 
from A to Z, from young to old, from high to low, because it's all unlawful, like we just said. So I just retract and I can just give a, an educated opinion with references and an objective report. Um, like, like I've said many times, it, it, if everyone wants to band together and hold hands and make the world a paradise, I'm still going to be as separate from them as possible. If they all want to band together and create a living hell on earth, I'm still going to stay separate from them. Either way, whatever they do in the state that they're in, right? So this is the 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 uh, intention of these sonic events is to be is to give a, a, an objective report and a quote unquote opinion with references, but at the same time to remain set apart from it and indifferent to it. So again. Uh, what they're doing with the attorney just to go back because everyone is acting in a criminal sense or supporting it. Um, the, the, the attorneys are just there to monetize, uh, charges, you know, from traffic tickets to court cases, all those numbers, all those things are monetized. In other words, they're deposited into the bank for credit and there's nothing you can do about it to some do. In other words, there's no way to fix it. It has to be redone. And it is, I mean, the destruction of man's society is done by the quote-unquote good guys, not the bad guys. The bad guys are the ones who are running it. Mm. Do you know what Shakespeare was talking about when he wrote, the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers in, in that Henry VI play? Yeah, that's well, that's a conversation between two of the characters, and there's more detail than just kill all the lawyers. Well, yeah, yeah I know, but I'm just yeah. referring to the quote. Well, yeah, that's something that has to be read in context. There is a, a Wolf Hill or something. There is a, a, a PBS series, a Wolf Hall or something, about um, uh, an attorney for the king. That's a good series to watch. It's about one of the head attorneys there and the treachery and the lying that he did and the, the feigning uh, of uh, power uh, to maintain the British monarchy or the English monarchy during that time. I believe it was Thomas Cromwell. Cron yes, based on him, mm -hmm, his life. And there's a several of those Crom Cromwells. Uh, it's the original one. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good series to watch on PBS. I'm not promoting it, but it's, uh, it'll, it, it's just uh, – it's like watching something. You know, uh, you can reference most of the things that they show, but it's in real life. You know, it's like watching a film. You know, like most Christians know about the Bible by watching Walt Disney or the movies that they made. It's incorrect, obviously, all of it, right? None of it's correct, but at least you get a, a flavor for it, you know, the time period and the uh, certain things that were said. All right. Well, then – I think it's something that could be useful for people to check out if they feel so inclined. But I think that we're going to have to uh, bring the conversation to a close. We've been talking for over an hour, and I think we've given people a lot of good things to mull over. So unless you have something that you want to reiterate or emphasize Greek, I think I'm good. Not at all. I mean, uh, well, what is there to emphasize but to de-emphasize what people think is true, really? And uh, this this last uh, conversation or sonic event with the economy and the legal system is too broad uh, to, to even get into other than giving uh, half-hearted opinions like I did pretty much. Hopefully I gave it with enough reference and, um, and uh, some kind of flavor that people can go and uh, look up um, certain things. But with that said, yeah, that's, that's it for now, I guess. All right. Well, then I think we'll end things off on that note. It's been a good stream, and we'll be returning at some point in the near future for the last episode of the Greek Speak podcast series. Sorry again for the long waiting time, but we only have one more left to go, and we will see you next time. So thanks again for listening.